We'll sing Into My Heart. Now, I suppose that even the youngest among us realize it's not talking about our heart that pumps the blood, where we have a pulse in our wrist and all of that. It's speaking of the very essence of my life. Everything in me, my, in, my inner being, into my heart, number 370. We'll sing it once now and then once before we're dismissed to our classes, okay? Thank you, Valerie. Sunday school, everyone. We had quite the week last week, and many of you were part of that. Thank you. And I'll also express a thank you during our morning service, but wow, uh, it was a delight to get to meet some other believers that we'd never met before and get to know them and them, us somewhat. And they've all communicated back, all of them, that they're looking forward to getting together again. So we'll see what God does. Let's sing Into My Heart one more time, and then as we finish up, the children are dismissed to Sunday school, and the adults get to stay for Sunday school. I might have said, I'm almost sure I did say last week that, uh, you know, I thought for a moment there I was skipping ahead. I thought we were going to finish the lesson, and then I had to back up because I had missed a couple things. And I think I kind of indicated that, well, we'd finish that up and go into the next lesson. I didn't really want to do that, though. So we're going to finish this up, Lord willing, but we won't go into the next lesson. Um, so what we're going to do, especially we have uh, a couple folks who weren't here last week, so we will go through the blanks, fill in the blanks, talk briefly about what we discussed uh, last week, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to use the back of the sheet to make some notes if you want to, because we're going to cover some things that aren't, aren't there in your outline as we uh, finish up. So the, the, the lesson title for this was A Lesson from Rehoboam for Christians Today. Uh, and what we did, uh, Roman numeral number one here says, as Rehoboam's reign gets underway, he has a big decision he needs to make. Um, and we're not going to read that. Of course, the story is in First Kings. It's also in Chronicles. Uh, 
But basically, again, you know, uh, Solomon, the end of chapter 11 of 1 Kings, Solomon says, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel. It was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. And uh, so then in, in the beginning of chapter 12, Rehoboam's reign is underway. <clears throat> and basically, the... Uh, Israelites came to him, well, Jeroboam specifically, he came and they said, uh, uh, in verse 4 of that, he says, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of our father and his heavy yoke, which was upon us, and we will serve you. And so Rehoboam said, Go away for three days and come back to me. So in the meantime, he sought counsel from Letter A there in your outline first, he gets counsel from his father's advisors who say to yield to the people of Israel and lighten the workload on them. That was um, Solomon's advisors, the elders. That's what his counsel was. Go ahead and lighten them and then they will serve you forever. Uh, Then letter B, he gets counsel from uh, friends who advise him to tell the Israelites that he will be tougher on them than his father. He will increase the burden on them. So that's what his friends told him to do. So, letter C, after the three days, he addresses the people of Israel, and it seems like he is glad to, to follow the input from his friends. <clears throat> and which, so he, he tells them, I'm going to be tougher on you than, my, than uh, my father was. And this led to a split, or the split in the kingdom. This is where the northern and southern kingdoms came to be. Because Rehoboam, the, the new king in Israel, was not going to be easier on them, but harder. So uh, there was a split in the kingdom. So number two, the account reveals Rehoboam did not value the input of the elder advisors. So then we can ask the question, why did he bother to ask them? Well, the answer is in letter A, under that, under two, It is that he, as king, is procedurally supposed to do so, too. Um, It's what he, as king, is procedurally supposed to do, so he checks the box. It wasn't really in his heart. He basically just sought counsel from those who had the same idea he already had in mind. All right? But he, he he went through the process of checking the box. So, our Roman numeral number two, our application is how often do we as Christians treat the Bible the way Rehoboam treated the elder advisors? How often do we do that? We as Christians treat the Bible the way Rehoboam treated the elder advisors. And how did they treat them just as a check the box, something they should do? So letter A under that, dealing with issues such as origins, morality, sexuality, marriage, gender, salvation, etc., we have to ask the question, number one, do we initially go to the Bible for an answer because that's what Christians are supposed to do? And we want to check the box as a procedural thing. It's not necessarily in our heart to really do what God wants, but it's just we know that's what we should do, so we, we go to the Bible. 
And then, number two, and do we, as soon as the Bible's answer isn't what we expected or wanted, quickly seek the advice of our peers, friends, and culture? And we mentioned again that the last place we want to seek counsel from is our culture. But that is very common in the, even in the world of Christendom, even in the world of Bible-believing Christendom, to, to try and see what... What does the culture provide that is attractive to people? Let's copy the culture to draw them in. And that's been a disaster. It looks good for a while. There are masses that follow that, but they're not not rooted uh, strongly in good earth to grow. Okay, so letter B next under that. The above two, especially the above immediate two points, I just above there, uh, relate to how we are not to treat Scripture. Uh, God's word is not a buffet, okay, um, where we pick and choose what we like or don't like. Uh, the word, of, on the contrary, the word of God is not optional. It's the absolute authority and truth for every topic. All right, so um, now I got to get back into my notes here. Number, um, number one, under B, as we share God's word, we can be confident that it, that's capital I-T, it, God's word, <laughs> is powerful to accomplish God's work, not we ourselves. It's God's word that's powerful, not we ourselves. And um, again, uh, Hebrews 4.2 says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit of the, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word reaches deep. It has power to do that. And it has cutting effect, piercing effect. It is powerful. And then Jeremiah... Um, Why don't you turn to that, please? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Let's. Um, And I'm going to. Okay, we'll do this first. Uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 29, says, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks? In pieces. So you combine those two verses, Hebrews, which talks about it being sharper than any two edged sword, piercing, but it's also like a fire, which we know spreads powerfully, is very hot, and then like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. I mean, it, it has power in, in multiple dimensions. Okay? Of course, these are just analogies to the spiritual reality of the power of the might that God's word has. Okay, so you're in Jeremiah. Uh, I need to correct or kind of, yeah, tweak your notes here. It says, uh, but letter A, but we must use it faithfully. And you could, uh, I have in brackets for myself, carefully also and reverently. Uh, And then I have bad examples and a good example. Okay, on the bad example, 
where it says Jeremiah 23, 28, 32. Put a, a mark through 28 and change that to 30. Okay, and then add as another good example next to 2 Peter 1, Jeremiah 23, 28 to 29. Okay, because that's a good example. And if you're there on Jeremiah where we just read, this is a good example, or this is a good way. Jeremiah 23, 28, and then 29, which we just read. The prophet who has it, verse 28 says, the prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. He who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord. And then verse 29, is not my word like a, fi- like a fire, says the Lord, like a hammer that breaks it in pieces. So we are to speak his word faithfully. So uh, I needed to kind of, I realized when I went through this, it's like, well, that's 28 and 29 is not a bad example. So I wanted to take that out of your bad example and put it under a good example. Okay, uh, again, the bad examples, uh, also in that, since you're there, hopefully still, the bad part is, verse 30 and so on, therefore, behold, I am against the prophet, says the Lord, who steal my words, everyone from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophet, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, he says. Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. So we don't want to. We don't want to follow that example. That, that's a bad example. Uh, to steal his words from others. To to say he says something when he doesn't really say it. And to prophesy falsely. Uh, and to be reckless. We don't want to be reckless with God's word. Okay, and then. Then turn, if you will, I think we've, we've finished. I did fill in a blank on number two underneath that, but then I realized I had missed something, so we backed up. So um, we almost got to the very last bullet. So t- go, turn, if you would, now to First Peter, I mean, sorry, Second Peter again, the other good example, Second Peter 1, and we're going to springboard from there after we read this. Uh, starting in verse, okay, let me turn there. Second Peter 1. Okay. Second Peter 1, starting in verse 16. Peter writing, saying, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received... For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I don't know if you remember, but I made a comment last week that what we have in the scriptures is as good as having heard his voice from heaven when they were on with him on the holy mountain. And in fact, if you continue on in verse 19, that's kind of what Peter says. Now, the, I'm going to 
I think amongst most of us here, we probably have one of the four versions that I'm reading from, but I'm going to look at each one. The New King James says, So, and so we have, verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as the light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The King James says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy in comparing to what they saw when they heard him on the holy mountain. The New New American Standard says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. And the uh, English Standard Version says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. The point is, our Bible is a more sure word of prophecy than what they saw there on the mountain when God, with his voice, said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This, God, we know this, right? But it, I don't know, it sends chills down my spine a little bit when I think, <clears throat> this is God's word from heaven. Yeah. We have it. It's here on earth, but it's from heaven. Right, God's word has passed the test of time. And it's true. Uh, yeah, our, our experiences, our emotions, when we go through things like that, they can be, they are changeable. They can be uh, off balance, whatever. And of course, that's true even as we go into God's word. That, that's why it's frightening. I think Joshua and I, we had a conversation not long ago, like some of the paraphrases of the Bible. Can, can you really call them God's word? It's like, yeah. It's, you know, what man has taken it in and interpreted it and made it what they think is right. Well, maybe they're right, maybe they're not, but you've taken away from what God's word really was. So we need to be careful, again, with our translations. That's why I do like, some people might not agree with this, but I appreciate having different versions, if they're good versions, to compare even amongst good versions. To, to say, okay, what's this saying as best as we can? But at least we have God's word and not what somebody's already done to, uh, to change it. Was there another hand? No, I guess not. Okay. All right, so the last point there, though, which is pretty much the same in all the versions, that, that we should take heed or pay attention to the word as a light that shines in a dark place. Okay, this is where we're going to divert a little bit. If you remember back, the previous lesson was titled, Why the Visceral Reaction to Christianity? And the prime answer to that question was that darkness hates light. And this darkness versus light battle has continued since the fall of mankind, recorded back in the third chapter of Genesis. Ultimately, the author of the dark side of the battle is Satan himself, right? And in that lesson, we referred to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6. Let's take a little side trip to that again. But before before we get to the next point in your outline, and actually before we go to chapter 6, let's look at chapter 5. Go to Ephesians, please. Chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 6. And I'm going to kind of, I'm going to read some of it and summarize and get all the way to the end of chapter 5, and then we'll go into chapter 6. But in verse 6 of chapter 5, it says, Let no one deceive you 
with empty words. The King James says, vain words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It might be a bit of an oversimplification here, but not much. (laughs) Uh, But empty or vain words would include any teaching in in regard of things that we've been covering through this whole study of moral issues, life issues, uh, environmental issues, uh, salvation, and so forth. Vain words would be anything, any teaching that ignores or denies God's word as authoritative. Okay, if, if you say, well, God's word doesn't matter, or we can't really, that's not the authority, we're going to come up with our own way, that's vain, that's going to be empty, vain words. Okay, and as you can see in the latter part of that verse, God's not pleased with such an attitude towards his word because he says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He either has judged or will judge those people who do the deceiving with empty words, who leave his authority out of the picture. Okay, so coming, continuing on with that passage. Verse 7 says, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you, once, you were once darkness. Remember this, dark light? But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the, spirit, uh, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Um, what, What I got from this, and what I hope you get from this a little bit, is, again, we are in the midst of this very real spiritual warfare, darkness versus light. If we are in Christ, if Christ is in us, then... We have the light now. We are light in the Lord. And so everything about our lives, it's, it's part of this bigger picture of this warfare. And we want to be on the side of light. Hopefully that will lead us and help us in, to be obedient in every way we can. Okay, um, verse 14 in that passage. Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you the light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Do we live in evil evil days? (laughs) Paul, writing back to the Ephesians back in in the first century, those were evil days then, and certainly we're in evil days now. Okay, then he goes on, jumping ahead to verse 21. Paul addresses various personal relationships. Uh, submitting one to another in the fear of God. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Then verse 33, kind of concluding that, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Then continuing into chapter 6, we see other relationships. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 4, and you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. 
And then verse 5, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters. And verse 9, and you masters do the same things to them, to the bond servants, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. So with all these personal relationships as a backdrop, Paul continues in verse 10 with details of the spiritual warfare that exists in the world. And I didn't know how to put this in words, but we can't forget these human relationships. They're the backdrop before he gets into all this spiritual warfare. So in the midst of these relationships with others, the things he's about to teach need to be worked out. It would be easier in some ways if people people weren't part of the equation. At least it would be for me. It would be easier to say, okay, I'm going to do these things for God without having to worry about people. But no, people are an integral part of this. So just keep that in mind as we continue. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Again, he's the author of all this dark versus light battle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against the, and this is interesting, against uh, spiritual, the New King James says, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The New American Standard said spiritual forces of wickedness, and the King James just said against spiritual wickedness in high places, the same word that is often translated heavenly, That seems to be the idea. There are spiritual forces or hosts or just spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what what we're wrestling against, the darkness of this age against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day And again, chapter 5, verse 16 says, the days are evil, and we are in the evil day. And having done all, it might get more evil, but it is evil already, and having done all to stand. And then it goes on into the the, uh, warfare, uh, the the garments, and so forth. Uh, Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And we're going to get into the last couple verses here in a moment. But for now, let's go now back to, let me, we're going to go back to number two in your outline, B number two. Um, But before I do, any questions or comments about the the side, the, the path I took there going off to Ephesians? I, I don't know. I think it's important. We've mentioned it a number of times through this study that there's a spiritual warfare, but that passage in Ephesians 6 is so strong, um, and it's not the only place, but it's a kind of put, has it all packed in there. It helps so much, I hope, for us to keep that in perspective. It's not just, it's not us wrestling against some other guy who's stronger than us. It's a spiritual warfare that's going on. Yep. That is our ultimate source of wisdom. It leads us back to the Word of God, right? And, you know, he's given, he's given pastors and teachers and so forth to help equip people. Yes. 
But they're not the ultimate authority. They're not, no. That's right. Be like the Bereans who search the scriptures to see if those things are true. Absolutely. And let the Holy Spirit guide you in that. Absolutely. Right. And some of that comes from unbelievers versus believers within families as well. Yep, that's another element of the battle is that our own flesh and our own weaknesses are still there. Uh, We hopefully subdue those more and more as we submit to the, the Holy Spirit and the Lord's leading and the righteousness of Christ in us. But yeah, Satan knows about that too, so he uses that in his warfare. Yeah, Trudy. Yeah, continue to... Repentance is important, even for the... Again, it's, um, it's uh, something that's kind of hard for us to fully understand. Our sins are forgiven. Yeah. They are blotted out as far as the east is from the west. But we have the very real f- fact of our present-day sins. Right. And we do need to go to God and repent, right. uh, confess them and repent from them and walk in obedience. Right. Yes, we sure do. We sure do, and that's one of the reasons we still yearn and groan for heaven, because then we won't have it. All right, let's go. Number two, this is where we left off last week. (laughs) Okay, number two, let us make every thought bow to Scripture and obey Christ the King. Uh, This has to do with repentance. Please turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 3, actually. For though we walk in the flesh, here we go again. This is continuing the theme, sort of, out of Ephesians 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And this is, a, that's just, this is important, too, in terms of the sins. And Laura mentioned the weaknesses that we, each one of us have. It's got, the weapons that he wants us to put on are, are strong for pulling those down, pulling down those strongholds. And then verse 5, casting down arguments. Uh, the King James says imaginations. The uh, New American Standard says speculations. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God is there, are there a lot of high things today that exalt excel against, against the knowledge of God? A lot. But we are to be bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ... Uh, one commentator on that casting down imaginations or arguments, the word really kind of means reasonings or opinions. And he points out the Greek philosophers valued themselves especially on their ethic systems in which their reasonings appeared to be very profound and conclusive. I, li- I like this. Uh, but they are, were obliged to assume principles which were either such as did not exist or were false in themselves, as the whole of the mythologic system most evidently was. And as to their philosophy, it was in general good for nothing. (laughs) But those are some of the empty words, okay, that we need to be careful not to follow or to be deceived by. Um, Then he pointed out every high thing that that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. He said, uh, 
Even the pretendedly sublime doctrines, for instance, of Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics in general fell before the simple preaching of Christ crucified. So that's what we should do here is let, make every thought bow to Scripture and obey Christ the King. Number three, by unleashing the truthfulness and authority, unleashing, that's your blank, I guess, unleashing the truthfulness and authority of God's word, we effectively contend for the faith, encourage the believer, and clear a path for the gospel. Um, Okay, let's turn to Jude chapter 1. Well, let's turn to Jude. This is why when we had our little game night on, fr- on s- Sunday, I knew the answer to this question because I had just had this ready for the lesson. Jude, um, bear with me, um, what do I have there? Verse 3, well, I'm just starting at verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, okay, this is not part of the lesson per se, but to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father. We are set apart by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Are you glad that you were preserved in Jesus Christ? Then he goes on, and and hopefully that thought will give you mercy, peace, and love. (laughs) Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you then. Verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So he exhorts the believers there to contend earnestly for the faith. That's part of that that's kind of the high level lesson of this whole set of lessons we've been going through. We want to be able to contend earnestly for the faith using scripture to do so. We've read 2 Timothy 2:24 2, and 25 several times. You don't need to turn there. Actually, go ahead and turn to uh, Colossians chapter 4. I'm just going to read 2 Timothy while you're doing that, where it says, Then the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And then finally, oh, wow, we're out of time here. Um, Okay, you're in Colossians, uh, or getting there. If you can keep a finger there once you get to Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But, but look back, turn, turn towards the front of your Bible to Ephesians again, real quick. Keep a finger there in Colossians, because we're going to go right back there. But Ephesians chapter 6, uh, we read that whole thing about the armor of God and so forth. But we stopped short, where in verse 18 of chapter 6, he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Verse 19, praying, and for me, 
that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change, that is, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So we've mentioned before, Ephesians 4.15 says we're supposed to speak the truth in love. We'll keep that in mind. So just reading that, that Paul had prayed that they would give him utterance that he'd be speak boldly. Now look to Colossians chapter 4. Um, chapter 4 and... <laughs> okay, verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Very similar prayer to what he just asked in Ephesians 6. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Then again, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So, again, we can do it boldly. We need to ask, pray for one another that we would do it boldly, but we also need to do it humbly, have our speech seasoned with grace, or always with grace, seasoned with salt, that we may know how to answer each one. That, that is a easier said than done, amen? But that's what we want to strive for, and hopefully this has been equipping you. We have one more concluding lesson for the, in this book, but uh, hopefully this has helped you have the perspective as you go forward and use these things. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Again, your word, Lord, we truly would be clueless without it. It's no wonder that the world who sets it aside comes up with countless different various options uh, and, 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 and philosophies, <clears throat> but your, your word is true, and we thank you that we can count on it. We pray now that you would um, bless the service to come, Father, that all would be done for your honor and glory and uh, help us to be attentive to your word and uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.